please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together, thanks be to God. The reading for this morning comes from Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, and Genesis 15, verses 1 through 12, and verse 17. Hebrews 11, 11 through 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Genesis 15, 1 through 12 and 17. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the King's Church. Excited to uh, worship with you all this morning and open up God's word for us. There's nothing like singing some good worship songs to God and then talking about animals getting sliced in half, right? So not sure what you came for this morning, but uh, if you think that's a bizarre passage, hopefully we will make some sense of that as we go today. Uh, well, I'm excited to be continuing our series through uh, Hebrews 11 that we have entitled Enduring by Faith. And today we are looking once more at the man of faith in the scriptures who is Abraham uh, but then also we're going to look at the faith of his wife, Sarah. 
And it's interesting for both Abraham and Sarah, uh, there's this little thread that kind of runs through their story. It's the idea of laughter, the idea of laughter. And as we develop that theme over the course of our kind of telling the story today, I want us to consider a moment up top, different kinds of laughter that we experience throughout life. All right, so the one that we think most often is laughing because something is enjoyable or humorous, right? It's the soundtrack of getting together with old friends and reminiscing on good times. It's maybe watching your favorite TV show or movie. It's the joy of hearing incredible news that just out of you comes laughter. Right, laughter ought to mark these things. That's not the only kind of laughter that we experience in this life. Sometimes we laugh sort of from a place of awkwardness. Right, someone says something that's completely inappropriate that catches you off guard and you're like, ah, yeah, wow, cool you just said that out loud, right? Uh, some people, by the way, are just naturally awkward laughers. Like, you know the people who they can't stand the silence, so you'll be in conversation and then they're just like, yeah. Just kind of awkward, right? It's as awkward as that moment was for you. <laughs> we all know those awkward laughers, okay? Uh, and then other times, we laugh almost from a place of scoffing, almost like an indignant kind of laugh, like, yeah, right, sure. Right, this is the kind of laughter my oldest uh, son gives me when I ask him to clean up right now, or to eat dinner, or really to do anything. He's like, yeah, that's cool, Dad. I appreciate you asking me that, but I'm gonna do my own thing. Right, so we have those different kinds of laughing that takes place in our life. And as we look at the faith of Abraham and Sarah today, we're actually going to see that all three of those kinds of laughing are interwoven into their story. So as we walk through their story, we're going to see the highs and lows of their life. We're going to see the beauty of God's promises to them while also acknowledging the pain of waiting and longing. And all of this is going to give us a further glimpse into the life of enduring faith. And in God's grace, the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac is ultimately one where God gets the last laugh. God gets the last laugh, but not in a maniacal way, one that is full of grace to those people that are in this story. Now, the hardest part of this series is trying to identify which Old Testament narratives to pair up with all of these figures, and today might be the hardest. Uh, these two, that little two-verse summary of Abraham and Sarah actually covers six chapters of Genesis. So we're going to try to take a wide-angle lens here at the beginning and then narrow in to these two verses in Hebrews 11 as we go. But here's what I believe our, uh, the text is leading us to see today as our main idea. Faith waits patiently on the Lord, trusting he is faithful to do what he has promised. Faith waits patiently on the Lord, trusting he is faithful to do what he has promised. Before we jump into that, though, let's take a moment to pause and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, what an incredible privilege it is to gather uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. We thank you that the promises that you gave to Abraham and Sarah were fulfilled, and we thank you that us, some 2,000 plus years later, 4,000 plus years later, sitting halfway across the world from them are actually the beneficiaries of what you promised would come true in their lives. What an incredible thought for us to enter into today. Now we pray as we come into this space with all sorts of different circumstances, all sorts of different points of pain and frustration, joys, all the normal things that come in life, uh, we thank you that you meet us right where we are with your grace and that your grace is taking us somewhere. I pray today as we study the faith of Abraham and Sarah and consider what that means for our lives, that uh, you would remind us that you are faithful, 
Remind us that we can endure in faith by your grace and through your spirit. And I pray you'd help us to see and treasure the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your word. So Lord, give us right now ears to hear, eyes to see, and heart to respond to that good news today. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we walk through this today, I kind of want to take us through three movements. I want to begin by talking about faith in the waiting, and then faith in the promise maker, and then faith in the impossible. But as we begin with faith in the waiting, I want to set the context here a little bit. If you joined us last week, we looked at God's call on Abraham in Genesis 12 to go, to leave all that he had ever known to go to the land that God was going to show him. We emphasize the nature of his pilgrimage and exile as he was looking forward to the city whose foundation and builder was God himself. But central to this call to go that we didn't really talk about last week is the fact that God promises Abraham not just a land, but a people, but a people. That from his offspring, a great nation will be born, and that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him and through his offspring. But there's one obvious, massive problem here. Abraham, who is 75 years old when God appears to him, has no children. Genesis 11 says that his wife, Sarai, later Sarah, which is what I will call her today, is barren. And even though people lived longer back in biblical times, the fact that Abraham is 75 years old and his wife is old as well is meant to point to the impossibility of what God has promised. Unless God sovereignly intervened himself, there was no way that this promise was going to come true. And I think when we begin to peel back the layers here, we realize that more is even going on than meets the eye. This would have been particularly painful, the circumstances that Abraham and Sarah find themselves in. Let's start with Abraham. The name Abram literally means father of many. Father of many. And then God later bestows on him the name Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, as in more than the many you were already named after. Now imagine for just a moment, Abram, as a young man, he's bearing this name probably as a point of privilege and pride. There was a sort of anticipation for what his future held with a name like that. So he grows up, probably is a very eligible bachelor, right? And then he gets married, but then the kids don't come. Imagine Abram at age 30, at age 50, at age 75, greeting people whom he meets as Abram, father of many, with no children to show for that. And you put yourself in his shoes, you imagine the pain and the frustration there. I mean, his name is father of many, he has no children, he's waiting and waiting, but nothing ever comes of this. Now what about Sarah, his wife, how would she be handling this dynamic? Well, the weight she was carrying in this circumstance was likely immense. She's feeling pressure, I think, in at least three ways. Okay, the first is culturally, culturally. Infertility and barrenness would have been a particular point of shame and disappointment for a woman in this time period. So much of what it meant to be a woman and a wife was wrapped up in childbearing. And in situations of infertility, it was culturally assumed to be the woman's fault which then caused within her, secondly, psychological pressure. Emotionally, she had to be drained. 
he very likely felt like a failure because of those cultural expectations. And in walking alongside struggles with infertility with a number of dear friends here at our church, there's a unique kind of burden with this, isn't there? There's a wave of disappointment that crashes in month after month after maybe you had hoped something else was coming. Hope can quickly give way to despair. Well, for Sarah, the months had stacked up upon themselves. Emotionally, she has to be drained and exhausted. But then thirdly, she might even be feeling pressure theologically. Infertility in the regular thinking of this time period was thought to be a curse from God, a sign of his divine displeasure. And on the other hand, God showed up to her husband and promised, you will have a child. You will have an heir. Imagine the pressure that Sarah feels month after month when God himself has promised this would come true, but yet no children to show for. A lot of pressure, a lot of people looking at you, isn't it? You see, for Abraham and Sarah, there's a conflict that is happening. And this conflict, I think, is the same conflict that all who are living a life of faith will encounter. You see, they're confronted with this reality. Am I going to continue to trust God and his promises, even though I don't see any way that this is going to be fulfilled? Am I going to continue in faith to obey and trust God as I wait? Or will I turn aside and take matters into my own hands? Will I do what the author of Hebrews says? Will I shrink back from the life of faith and live a life by the, by the flesh? You see, the rubber hits the road in the life of faith when we encounter a perceived delay in what God has promised in our current circumstances. The rubber hits the road when there's a disparity between God's promises and what we're experiencing in our everyday life. I mean, just think of a few examples, right? We know what God has said in his word about finances and generosity. We know that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also but then in the back of our minds, we say, yeah, but I really need to take care of me right now. Right? We know the sexual ethic in the scriptures and God's good design in this area, but I can't possibly imagine living that way. I can't possibly ask others to live that way. Right, kids? I know what the Bible says about honoring my father and mother, but really, God? I mean, have you met them? Are you sure that commandment's there? Do I have to do that? I know that the Christian life is one of delayed gratification, but I want this right now. In fact, I need this right now. You feel the tension there? You feel the pressure point? That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah are feeling, and it's exactly what we feel in our lives as well. Where are you tempted to justify sin and impatience because of your circumstances? I would argue it is precisely at that pressure point that God is calling us to a life of enduring faith. It's in these moments that the waiting has meaning, where the waiting and the trusting forms us as disciples of Jesus Christ. After all, as Pastor Jarabaster has said, if God is answering your prayers with a no, a wait, or silence, that is when the relationship gets real. You have to trust, wait, and surrender because he is not a cosmic genie. The relationship gets real at that pressure point. And we all feel that in some way, don't we? Now here's the thing, in the face of that pressure, Abraham and Sarah, they sort of fumble their way through this thing, if I could put it lightly. If I could give you the flyover of those six chapters that were covered in the story, 10 years 
after the initial promise from the Lord. Ten years. Abraham, at the urging of Sarah, they grow impatient. He takes Hagar as another wife, going against God's design to wait and to be faithful to him. And Hagar bears a son named Ishmael. See, this is a story of what happens when impatience meets unbelief. Then God makes them wait another 13 years after the birth of Ishmael before he appears to Abraham again. I'll talk about faith in the waiting. That's an awful long time, isn't it? We're now at 24 years since God showed up to Abraham in Genesis 12. Time wasn't any different back then. A year is a year. 24 years. Abraham, who is now 99 years old, pleads before the Lord, can Ishmael be this son that you have promised? And God reiterates, no, that's not the son I have promised. Your wife, Sarah, herself, 90 years old, is going to bear you a son. And Abraham, I think, responds as any of us would respond in that moment. In Genesis 17, verse 17, it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You see, Abraham's laugh there is sort of that awkward laugh of, Okay, God, are you sure we're going to bear a child at this age? Then in Genesis 18, the next chapter, the Lord comes again, this time for Sarah, even though she doesn't know it. In Genesis 18, beginning in verse 10, it says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. There you go, it's in the Bible. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying... After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he, the Lord, said, No, but you did laugh. That's a good moment, isn't it? Sarah's like, oh, I didn't laugh. And God, omnipotent, omnipresent, like, yeah, yeah, no, you did. Sorry. But Sarah's laugh is a, a scoffing laugh. It's a laugh of unbelief from a place of pain. Right? This place of pain causes her to say, there's no way. There's no way. An unbelieving, scoffing laugh. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, Sarah and Abraham show up right here in Hebrews 11. They did have faith, according to the scriptures. How did that work? I mean, that's kind of a messy 24 years there. So how did that work? Well, that moves us to our second point, faith in the promise maker. See, I think the key verse is here in 11. The second half is the key phrase. Verse 11, by faith of Hebrews 11, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age that she considered him faithful, who had promised. That's the key phrase. She considered him faithful, who had promised. The author seems to be emphasizing, by the way, that Sarah herself, almost saying, yes, even Sarah, that Sarah, the one who had the scoffing laugh at the one appearance she had from the Lord, 
you live by faith. And the emphasis here is so important. At some point in time, Sarah's attention and focus moved off the promised to the one making the promise. You get the distinction there? She considered him faithful who had promised. Hebrews is telling us that at some point in time, she settled herself before the Lord and trusted him. It wasn't merely the promise that Sarah considered. It was the character and the nature of the God behind the promise. Now, how could Sarah and Abraham have gotten to that point? And how can you and I get to that point in the midst of whatever we might be waiting for that we feel that pressure? How can we trust that he is faithful? Well, I think part of the answer is back in Genesis 15, in that section that we used to read for us this morning. You see, Genesis 15, 6 is like the high point of Abraham's life. Like if I, this would be the thing he wanted on his tombstone. Genesis 15, 6, God has promised your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the, sea, as the sand on the seashore. And Abraham, it says, believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He had faith. He believed, even though he had no children, he believed that God was going to come through. But we have to appreciate that just two verses later, after Abraham has believed, he's like, okay, I believe, but how exactly is this going to happen? Can you help me out here see how this is going to come about? You see, just after Abraham believed, he's wrestling with that belief. Maybe that's an encouragement to you today. You see, Abraham and Sarah are a lot like you and me. Faith is not about certainty around every corner. They certainly didn't have that. And by the way, we don't have that for this life. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring you, nonetheless, 10, 20 years from now. Faith is not without its questions. Faith sometimes might even have its doubts. Abraham is crying out in this moment, sort of like the man in the New Testament whose child is ill, and he looks at Jesus and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's so often what the life of faith feels like. Abraham is asking this question from a posture of faith, but seeking understanding. And the Lord answers graciously this request from Abraham, but he does so in a very unusual way. He instructs him to organize a covenant agreement ceremony. Now, typically today, if you and I or you and somebody else want to go into an agreement or a contract or even a covenant, like a marriage covenant, how do we typically ratify that? If it's something informally, maybe we do a handshake, but typically we just sign some papers, right? Maybe if it's important enough, we have to go and get that thing notarized, right? What even is a notary? If someone knows it, seriously, explain it to me afterwards. It's like, hey, I signed this paper, but I really mean it because I got it notarized, right? Like I signed it, but I'm extra serious. <laughs> That's how we get into agreements today. It's always a bit of a mystery. That's not how they did it in the olden days, though. Okay, they're participating here in what is known as a blood path covenant. How about that? What Abraham is doing looks insane to us today, but it would be completely normal in this time period. What you would do in this agreement is you would take animals, you would cut them in half, and you would basically create, I know this is a bit graphic, so stay with me, a pathway between the animals that was literally just covered and filled with blood. This is why in the Hebrew Old Testament, by the way, you don't just agree to a covenant, you literally cut a covenant. That's what the Hebrew word means. Okay, and the way that you would ratify this is that each party 
would walk down that blood path in between these split animals. And what that symbolized is that both parties were communicating, listen, if I don't uphold my end of this covenant agreement, then may it happen to me what has happened to these animals. May I be cut off and cursed. A little more intense than just a notary, isn't it? I've offered to all the couples that do premarital counseling, listen, if you want to do this, nobody's taking me up on it. I just terrified some people in this room I'm actually doing premarital counseling with. I'm sorry, we won't do that, I promise. We'll do the notary. All right, now I'm not sure if you caught it though, but the context in Genesis 15 is surprising. Abraham, he never walked through that blood path. Did you catch that? Instead, the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. It is dreadful and dark, and then a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That description is the same description that's used of God's very presence in the exodus and the wandering of the wilderness. What it's saying is the very presence of God is the one who walks down the blood path. Shockingly, the Lord is the only one who travels in between the animals. You see what that's communicating? In all the bloodiness and strangeness of this moment, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Are you tracking with it? The Lord himself goes through. He's saying, I am obligating myself to both ends of the covenant. He's telling Abraham, even if you are unfaithful, which, by the way, you will be, I will be faithful. I myself will suffer the consequences on your behalf. I will pay the price. I will put my blood on the line to maintain the promise I've made to you. That's the gospel, isn't it? You see, in Hebrews 6, earlier, says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, as in, God doesn't have a notary, okay? He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. What's the author of Hebrews saying? When God made the promise, he put his own life on the line with it. He swore by himself there was no higher name to appeal to. And of course, this picture of God's presence passing through the blood path is seen most profoundly at the cross of Jesus Christ. The person in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. It's there on the cross that Jesus suffers the consequences of our lack of faith in our unbelief, in our turning aside from the Lord. And it's there that his blood is shed in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. Listen, if it sounds too good to be true, you're just beginning to grasp it. It was too good to be true for Abraham. It's too good to be true for us. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we want to endure in faith like Sarah, we must also consider him faithful who had promised. Because the person making the promise matters, doesn't it? We know this to be true, right? I'm guessing that most of you in this room have probably once in your life received the old Nigerian prince email scam. You guys know what I'm talking about? Right, that thing still makes hundreds of thousands of dollars every year, by the way, right? Pray for our fellow citizens, that's concerning. What, if you're unfamiliar, you'll get an email from someone claiming to be a royal prince from Nigeria. They're letting you know that, hey, surprise, you random Gmail search I found, right? You're sitting on a huge lump sum of money that I can deliver to you, right? So just provide me some key information, your bank account, social security number, wire information, birthday, passwords, all that, right? We'll get it to you, right? That's one way we receive news like that. But compare that to the, if you 
got in the letter a mail from an attorney, a real person that you could confirm exists, who has provided you information that a family member who has passed that you knew has left you a sum of money and it is spelled out clearly in their will. I mean, that letter's probably notarized, right? You get that and you're like, okay, that makes sense. Right? We would view those situations differently. Why? Because of the person making the promise. When we wrestle with whether or not we can trust God in light of the circumstances of our lives, the gospel invites us to look to Jesus. When we question his faithfulness, we go back to the cross. Listen, the cross doesn't answer all of our questions. It's not going to give us complete certainty about what the future holds or that one situation that we just are really stuck in. We can still ask our questions. We can cry out in moments of doubt and unbelief, but ultimately at the cross of Christ where God obligated himself to us, even though we didn't hold up our end of the bargain, it reminds us that he is indeed faithful. He who promised is faithful. That is how we can know and trust by faith and by faith alone, that whatever is going on, he's got it. He knows what is best for us, even if we can't see it. The cross reminds us, he who promised is faithful. And because of that, because Abraham and Sarah, they settled themselves and said, okay, God, you can be trusted. We see that faith then results in the impossible. Here, verse 12. Therefore, from one man... In him as good as dead, which is a crazy description of a guy who lives 75 more years, by the way. Him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. 25 years after the initial promise, God was faithful to his word. Abraham and Sarah give birth to the son. He's 100. She is 90. So Abraham was as good as dead, descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore have come from him, including, by the way, the very Son of God himself. The birth of this son was the beginning of God's plan to bless the nations and to gather every tribe, tongue, and people in his church in one day before his throne, all from an impossible birth. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? You see, all this is impossible except for God. So what are the implications of that for us? Because I want to be careful. We can read this story and we can almost draw a conclusion that, hey, maybe we should just hope for the best in our lives and God's eventually just going to give it to us. This isn't a prosperity light kind of gospel message. I mean, look at the life of Abraham and Sarah. Does that scream prosperity gospel to you? It doesn't. So I want to draw two implications for us today. Here's the first. Don't be surprised when the life of faith brings you to what feels like a barren or a dead place. Don't be surprised when the life of faith brings you to what feels like a barren place. After all, this is the place that God seems to do his best work in our lives, isn't it? God loves to bring us to the end of ourselves where all that is left is him. Paul reminds us in the New Testament that God's power is made perfect, not in our strength, not in our obedience, but in our weakness. In our weakness. Keeping the faith while in a place that feels barren and dead reminds us that salvation 
and anything of eternal significance is God's work and his work alone. He is the one who loves to bring beauty from ashes. He is the one who brings life from death, most notably the death of Jesus Christ himself. So if you feel like you're in that barren place, whatever the circumstances are in your life, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that. He promises to be right there with you. And as Tim Keller has said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Brothers and sisters, he will bring us to that place. And it is his grace and kindness that he does that. We need that reminder when our circumstances and our waiting seems to be in conflict with what we know to be true about God. I hope that frees you up, by the way. The life of faith is not just like glossing over our circumstances and acting like they don't exist. They're brutally honest about them. I love how Romans 4 describes this story. Romans 4, beginning in 18. It says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope. Abraham was literally hoping against hope, as in, this was a hopeless situation. But yet... He still just had something in him that says, maybe, maybe God will come through. Abraham is hoping against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As has been told, so shall your offspring be. Now listen to this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Or when he considered the barrenness, literally in the Greek, the deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We've said it before. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. But here's the thing. The more we look to the object, the stronger our faith will be. That is exactly how Sarah and Abraham eventually lived. So where in your life do you feel like you are just hoping against hope? Where do you feel like you need the reminder of that little remark to Sarah that nothing is too hard for the Lord? Maybe it's that painful relationship that just feels broken beyond repair. Maybe it's the disappointment of a desire and a longing that you just are waiting for and it doesn't seem to come. Maybe it's that one sin that seems to cling so closely that you're trying by God's grace to turn from, but yet keeps coming back. Maybe it's that person you love who does not know Jesus that you've prayed for years would come to faith, but you're still waiting. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are people who because of the gospel, because of the faithfulness of God, and because of the power of God, hope against hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's fixing our eyes on the object of our faith. So don't be surprised when the life of faith leads us to that barren place. But secondly, don't be surprised when the life of faith meets us in our greatest place of pain and shame. Go back to where we started, that thread of laughter. God doesn't allow Abraham and Sarah to name their son. Would have been a rite of passage for parents, right? But this is a constant theme in the scriptures. He is the one who bestows the name. And he tells them, listen, your son's name is going to be Isaac. Remember what Isaac means? He laughs. He laughs. You see what God is doing there? He's taking their exact place of pain and shame and even unbelief, and he's giving them a memorial of his power and his grace. He takes Abraham's laughter of awkwardness and uncertainty, 
He takes Sarah's skeptical, scoffing laugh of unbelief and he turns it into a joyful, can you believe this kind of laughter. Every time they say the name Isaac, they're reminded of the faithfulness of God to them. They are remembering his grace, which triumphed over their pain and their shame and their failure. You see, God gets the last laugh. And we shouldn't be surprised when God does the very same thing in our lives. Right, the story reminds us of the incredible news that God views us, his people, in light of his grace and not in light of our failures. I mean, I don't know about you, we read Hebrews 11, we read Romans 4, and it, it paints them as these flawless figures, right? It's almost like, yo, did anybody read those six chapters and what happened in between? Right? Are they really that faithful? In God's eyes, they are. And we don't know how to operate like that, but God loves to operate like that. He's telling them to name their son Isaac, not so he can say every time, see, I told you, he laughed. No, he's naming him Isaac so they can be reminded of his goodness and his grace. That's why they talk about them in terms that almost feel uncomfortable to us. That is how God views them, and that is what he invites us into in the life of faith. He doesn't look at you in light of your greatest failure or your shame or your place of pain. He looks at you as he looked at his son, who looks at you in reverence. To keep the faith, it's, it's not mere wishful thinking. It's not positive energy. It's not some prosperity gospel. To keep the faith is to fix our eyes and to place our hope on the one who is faithful to his promises. God was faithful to them. He has always been faithful to his word. He will be faithful to us. When we forget that, we look at the cross. We look at the place where he obligated himself to us, upholding both ends of the deal. And because of his faithfulness, we can do exactly what Hebrews 10 encourages us. The author there says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. That is good news for people of faith like you and me. Let's fix our eyes there at where the hope comes to endure whatever circumstances are going on right now. Fix your eyes there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you showed yourself faithful in the story of Abraham and Sarah. We thank you that that just bizarre picture to us of that covenant ceremony points us to the hope of Jesus. It points us to the hope of the cross. And it reminds us that we can trust you. We can trust you. So Lord, I pray for us who are a people often of weak faith, full of uncertainty, who fumble and stumble our way through this life of faith. God, I pray that that would encourage us today. May we hold fast our confession without wavering, not because of something special in us, but because you have proven yourself faithful over and over again to us. Help us to remember Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes there, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, is seated at the right hand of God, and his grip on us is tight. Help us rest in that. Help us believe that and encourage us on the other end. Because we're people who need that encouragement, and we need to remember that you are faithful when we lack the faith. God, encourage us with that good news today. Meet everyone here in this room with whatever circumstances they're facing with the good news of your grace. 
and move them closer to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name.